Ladies and gentlemen, now hosting the Rizzo cast, put your hands together for Steven Risotto. What is happening, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 96 of RizzoCast. I'm Steven Risotto, and today we are joined by a very special guest. He was the former Colorado Rockies general manager and current MLB Network analyst. Uh, and he's also uh, he's also got a really cool thing going on right now with Win Reality. We'll get to that in just a second. Uh, but it is Dan O'Dowd who joins the show. Dan, how you doing? Welcome to the show. Steven, thanks for having me on. Congratulations on all your success. Thank you. I appreciate that. And as I mentioned to you off air, I turned on the TV the other day and I saw you that you were calling the uh, SDSU TSU game. And I, I know you're still heavily involved in, you know, evaluating young players, but does watching live college baseball kind of take you back a little bit to your career working for, you know, an organization? Uh, yeah. Every time I'm in the ballpark, it does that for me, but specifically when I'm watching high school and college games, actually it's the most enjoyable part of my job was scouting and development. So anytime I'm in a ballpark, you know, the hard part of it, I can never just really watch a game and enjoy it. I'm always watching a game to break the game down and the players involved, strategy and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I mean, I love being in particularly when I'm, you know, watching a college or high school game. And you still do draft coverage for, for MLB Network every year. And, uh, I know you highlight a handful of players um, each year and, and over the years, you've probably evaluated hundreds, maybe even thousands of amateur athletes. Let's say you're a GM. Now, what are some of the top tools or maybe skills or makeup uh, makeup qualities that you're looking for um, in preparation for the draft? You know, it's funny. Um, I think you said that. Uh, I think you said everything. Well, I think it's a reverse order. I think from a talent perspective, you know, I'm a big believer in, in movement patterns. So I think how a player moves at their given position really lends a lot of insight into how kind of adjustments they're going to make, what kind of things they can repeat of their skill set. But I don't think clubs have a hard time getting the skills right. It's the package inside, I think, is the separator. I think it's the Rubik's cue of our game. I think it's the holy grail of understanding that term makeup, which is so often used in our industry, but so not readily defined within our game. I think the one thing for me that has stood pretty consistent throughout my career is that if you, if you believe in a player's ability, so if you watch the skill set, and I'm a big believer in player profile, Steven, so there's a skill set and a profile for each position on the field. Um, but I think the one underlying fact more than anything is their love of the game. Now, I think there are players that say they love the game when the game is going well, but I think it's the players that love the game. In fact, when the game is not going exceptionally well, or the players that have the ability to grind through um, and get through to where the, to bridge the gap between their actual potential and performance. The other thing I have found is the players who have a, a tendency to look at things very present focused. So they don't carry the baggage of hap what happened yesterday. They don't necessarily live into what, the future may hold that they show up at the ballpark every day and the game or practice that given day tells them what they need to work on the next day. And it's the accumulation of doing that over and over again, that turns a really good player to a great player, a great player into a superstar. And then I think the third thing for me that has been very prevalent in my career uh, is the players that can control what they can control. So much, so many good players I have found, you know, want to determine where they hit in the lineup or what level they should be put at or, 
you know, how they should be being used throughout the course of their development process. It's the players that don't care about any of that. I mean, they just focus, focus and they compete day in and day out of the ones to me that eventually end up being really good big league players. And we hear the term on the, the programs like the draft. We always hear baseball rat. So is that kind of what you're, you're talking about there with makeup in terms of being a baseball gym rat? Yeah, kind of a grinder, uh, but grinder with talent. You know, I think the mm-hmm. misconception of rat and grinder for me, I think it has a, a uh, sometimes uh, really talented players that have that mindset is when you get, you get all of that player. So, you know, honestly, I'll take a player of less ability to some degree that has some of those intangible qualities because the bottom line is you're making up a team and a team is made up of individual components or their parts. The more players that you can find that exhibit those kind of qualities, the better your team's going to be because they're going to drive the player next to them to be better just by the way they go about doing their work. Mm-hmm. And you, you delivered one of the more important bits I've ever seen on MLB network. Uh, you, you talked about how teams, this was, I believe, you know, last year during the regular season, you talked about how teams could still contend for championships while rewarding the players who do multiple things well uh, and kind of developing at the big league level. Like, for example, you mentioned Shane Bieber, who's a walk-on at Santa Barbara and, you know, who was there with a, you know, high 80s, low 90s fastball with, you know, kind of a fringe average breaking ball. And now he's just this complete monster at the big league level, has a Cy Young. So explain kind of your reasoning on this reward system that you feel the industry can move towards developing. Okay, so right now the industry rewards, um, this is where analytics for me, I'm a huge proponent of analytics because I think they give you a roadmap to how to find answers to, but I'm not a proponent of analytics where they think they're the answer. So let me explain what I mean. Somebody who has a high spin rate and throws hard does not necessarily guarantee success, but we've created this reward system. And honestly, it started even back when we started evaluating velocity through radar guns is that if a guy throws hard, then all of a sudden then he gets put in a classification. Well, that's a good prospect. So they get rewarded with draft status, college scholarships, the two things that parents chase for their children when they start playing the game of baseball. And the kids themselves uh, chase it too. That's why perfect game, for example, rankings are so important within the, the realm of amateur baseball because it gives them comparison of how you know they're doing against their peers. The problem with that thought process for me, it only rewards a certain subset of players who never develop totality of their game. So if the industry would move away from just evaluating players that do certain skills at a very high level, and that's it, if the industry would start rewarding guys who hit instead of having high exit velocities, if the industry would start rewarding guys who have exceptional feel over the rubber and command and use of secondary pitches, instead of just velocity, all of a sudden now, we have an industry that is capable of players doing a variety of different things at the big league level, instead of just certain subset of things at the big league level. And I don't think, for an example, high velocity is sustainable health. There's nobody I have seen that throws hard as a young kid, that continues to throw hard, has any sustainable health as they go through their career. And and you mentioned uh, guys who hit well, too, and I mentioned Bieber. And you also, in that bit on MLB Network, mentioned Mookie Betts as kind of a a guy that you highlighted who scouts really raved about his plate discipline and his line drive swing. And, you know, power ended up developing at the big league level. 
Uh, and and there's after a guy, he got into professional baseball, after he got, after into, professional he got into, baseball. into professional baseball, that's right. So there was one area scout from the Red Sox that saw that because he was at a small high school that wasn't a very good high school program right outside of Nashville. And so there was one scout who saw that. My point is, I think there are a ton of Mookie Betts out there. I think scouts by general are afraid to put themselves on the line to recommend those kind of players because there's not this uh, bulletproof shield to hide behind of something that they do well, like power. Like I'm not a big believer in power at a young age if it comes over hitability. I believe power comes eventually with guys who hit that learn how to hit power and they end up being your best players. And so, you know, Mookie Betts is like, you nailed it. It's a perfect example of a guy who had elite plate discipline and a, and tremendous bat the ball skills even at a young age but he was undersized showed wasn't sure where he was profile all of a sudden he turns into a superstar with great development by the red sox they, they did a great job developing him in their minor league system and and there's one guy in san francisco right here that that might not be a household name nationally but lamont way jr kind of you know fits the same profile didn't hit for any power um, and at the minor league level, he had more walks than strikeouts. And now I think he, he came up and had like almost 20 homers for the Giants in a platoon role. So, yeah, like you mentioned, there's players like this all over the place. And I think in that bit you mentioned, you mentioned Alex Verdugo and Jeff McNeil and some of the other guys. And, and you know, that there's there's they're well, the all giant over the game. to me. The giant team last year to me was a team that you could look at. I think Mike Yaskrimski fell into that kind of category. Mm-hmm as a late bloomer. I mean, how do you look at Yaz and not even comprehend that he didn't get an opportunity to play at the big league level before the age of 29? I, I, I don't even understand the thought process. Lamont Wade, Solano. I mean, they had a whole team made up of guys that, that were good baseball players that in the right culture and environment and used correct, they flourished in the concept of a team. A hundred percent. Darren Ruff too, in that category. Um, so, I mean, I know you mentioned analytics and there's so many advanced stats in baseball and, um, you, you and your teams over the years have probably relied on many of them to put a team together, but, um, sabermetrics, in my opinion, has a, has a flaw in the, in one area that I see most more than others, it's defense. You could look at the lefty righty stats offensively and on base percentage at the minor league level, but I feel like defense is the one area where you have to be a little bit more creative and more visual when you're developing talent. Do you kind of feel the same about that? Yeah. And that's, and that's, you, you just got to the crux of the issues within our game right now. I mean, I mean, every part of the game, even what's going on with the CBA negotiations is that um, we've caught to the point in the game where we evaluate players based upon a set of statements. And then we use the, the good organizations, I think, use the verification of the eyeball test to match up with those, uh, with those qualifications. I think the great organizations use the eyeball test and then use the analytics to match up with those validations. I think defense is absolutely at the top of the list. I think you have to see defense first, and then you can verify it by what some of the metrics do tell you about a given player. And that's why I'm, like, I'm, I'm a big anti-shift guy. And it's not for the reason – I mean, it is for some of the reasons because I definitely want to see more offense in the game. But I think what the shift has done is taken away the ability for younger players to learn 
how to play a position with above average baseball awareness. So like I'll use DJ an example, DJ LeMahieu as an example. DJ LeMahieu is not a tool shed of a player. Like he got passed over at LSU. You know, he didn't go, he went high in the draft, but exceptionally high in the draft. I mean, we got him for Ian Stewart from the Cubs because I don't think the Cubs had him that high on their, their prospect list. But DJ Limon is, DJ Limon is a good player. He's an exceptional defensive player because his acumen of understanding how to play his position is incredible. He understands pitcher sequences. He understands bat pass. He understands what the hitter has done in his previous times. He watches video of guys to understand if a pitch is thrown there, more than likely where are they going to hit it. By the shifting of players, we just tell a player where to play. They don't learn any of those things. And so I think we have really affected defense in our industry by the use of analytics because we've taken away the onus of how to be a good, good defensive player from the individual player to a set of statistics that tell them what to do. So we're turning players into robots. And I think that creates a very unhealthy culture overall within our game, even between management and players on the field. And there's nobody diving for balls anymore at second base. I mean, that's why we have Mike Moustakis. Yeah, Mike Moustakis and Travis Shaw seeing time at second base. And that would never happen 20 years ago, ever. Because a second baseman had to be, your, 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 your tool set was hit, then field. Now your tool set may be hit, power, field, throw, run. That was not the priority at that position 20 years ago. I want to go back to the days when it was 20 years ago where there was a profile for a second baseman and he had to have a great understanding. He had to play the position because it made the game more exciting watching a player that really could make spectacular plays in the position. A thousand percent agree there. And and speaking of defense, uh, the Rockies, obviously, during your time, they're selected Nolan Arenado in the, in the second round in 2009 uh, out of high school. And we often hear about the current Hall of Famers, right? We know that Pujols is a lock, Verlander, Cabrera, Trout. They're kind of in their own category. Then there's kind of that next tier, that next path of players, uh, you know, Goldschmidt, Mookie Betts. And I think Arnado falls under that category too of guys that are on track for Cooperstown. What was so impressive <laughs> about, you know, Nolan Arnado way back, nearly 13, 14 years ago, that kind of caught your eye? Okay, you're going to be blown away by this, but it wasn't <laughs> his defense. He was a shortstop, um, had heavy feet, didn't move exceptionally well, um, good hands, uh, which may be an act, you know, May not be true if he didn't have good feet. So he had good feet, but he didn't have good feet in extended range feet. Uh, what has impressed us about him offensively? We saw him take batting practice uh, in a live game situation one day. Um, took like 50 swings, never hit one ball out of the ballpark, but never miss hit one ball. So he consistently squared the ball hard to all parts of the field, had a really good understanding of the strikes. And we were big in Colorado at uh, strike zone awareness. Um, we would take kids that didn't have it, but strike zone awareness and bat the ball skills, everything else we were okay with. We didn't have any power, we didn't care. We just wanted our scouts to focus on those two things only. Nolan did that exceptionally well. When we moved into third base, um, it was incredible the progress he made so quickly adopting to that position. And I'll tell you what, it was a ton of great instruction, but it was also Nolan buying into the instructions and working his butt off day in and day out. That's why I'm a huge believer is that I think I'm not, I'm not saying you can take a shortstop and turning him into Ozzy Smith or Omar Vizquel or second baseman, turn him into Robbie Alomar. 
but I think you can take a guy who's an average defender and with the right structure and the right culture and environment and, and that player buying into hard work, and you can turn that into guy into a plus defender. I'm, I've seen it so many times. I think you can take a below average defender and that same type of criteria, turn them into an average defender. None of us, none of us saw two things in Nolan, that he would turn into this incredibly elite defender and he, it, that he'd end up hitting the home runs that he did, which again back, gets back to that philosophy learned over so many mistakes is that guys that can hit will hit for power. Guys that have some fielding ability with a ton of want to with right instruction will end up being good defenders. And this is something I've always wondered, this next question I have for you. I've always wondered, you know, we all know Coors Field is, is mesmerizing for pitchers and it could wear, wear you down. It could wear down rotations, bullpens over the course yeah, of 160 the hit, games. The hitting part of it is actually harder. Yeah, I don't doubt it. And especially waking up in the morning and, you know, heading out to the ballpark no, and feeling good. No, it's not. It's not even that, Stephen. Okay. Imagine that you worked in an environment mm-hmm. and every every six to 10 days, that environment would shift on you completely. So hitting is a muscle memory sport. And so it gets, it gets to do with how you wire your brain. It's everything else. I'm not going to get into the scientific. We could do that some other day, but not going to get into the scientific <laughs> part of the, the cortex for you. But basically you recognize the ball out of the hand, you recognize movement patterns, you hit. Okay. Colorado, there's no movements. Your ball doesn't move because movement is created when you throw an option against density. There's no air density in Colorado. So you see ball out of the hand, you hit a certain way. Now you get on the plane and go to San Francisco where there's huge air density. You're at sea level or even below at times. The air is extremely heavy. All of a sudden you see the same pitch out of that same pitcher's hand and the ball moves millimeter differently. It's impossible for you to make that correlated adjustments in how you swing to hit that ball in that grade of transition from a plane ride to your first game. All of a sudden, you go two to three days feeling like I'm seeing the ball, I'm taking the exact same swing, I'm not getting the same results. And what truly is a physical phenomenon quickly turns into a mental phenomenon where you begin to doubt your confidence. And I've seen the greatest hitters I've been around go through this. And that's the part of Coors Field that no one gets. Everybody gets the pitching part of it, but no one gets how difficult it is because you go to San Francisco, then you might go to LA, Diego, Arizona, then you're back to Colorado. And then you'll crush in Colorado because you don't see ball movement. Then you're back on the road again, and you're constantly mentally having to make those adjustments through the course of the year. So though you're physically exhausted playing a, a mile above sea level, you're mentally done with the grind of doing that through the course of a long season. That's the part of Colorado I've never figured out, which led to the formation of the company that we own. But it was it, it's the biggest Rubik's Cube of Colorado. I don't know if you're ever going to figure the pitching thing out, uh, but I do think bullpen guys have been very successful there. Certain starters have had a lot of success there. The only hitters who've had success there true success there are the guys who are elite that could hit anywhere in our game it's that next tier down guy that really struggled to make those adjustments yeah that's interesting i was going to ask what works there in terms of because i know the rockies have tried finesse rotations and they've tried power pitchers it's, it's a combination thereof if you have a finesse guy 
uh, that's got eight command, which is really hard to find, by the way. Because uh, so your subset of pitchers to avail is is really difficult. That like Jeff Francis would be a guy for me. Jeff Francis didn't throw hard, had eight command of his fastball, had a slow breaking ball, an outstanding changeup. That pitch mix will work there. Aaron Cook worked there, turbo sinker, 95, 94 to 96. Down the strike, so short little slider. That works there. Jason Jennings, <clears throat> for the most part, worked there. Heavy sink, both sides of the plate, slurvy type breaking ball, outstanding arm side run on his changeup. So there are different pitches, pitchers that work there. It's the sustainability of pitchers working there year in and year out. Jeff Francis blew out. Aaron Cook fell off quickly. J.J. career, we traded him to Houston, started to fall off very quickly. It's very difficult to have sustained sex there from a starting pitcher standpoint. So you constantly have to have pitchers coming through your system. And it's a very difficult thing to do because scouting and developing pitchers is a very hard thing to do. And changing course here um, to, to kind of your role as, as a general manager. And I know the image to the casual baseball fan of a general manager is Brad Pitt playing Billy Bean in Moneyball. That's kind of what the casual fan views. And, and there's that yeah, scene way off. <laughs> there's that scene where Billy or Billy or Brad uh, mentions uh, he, he talks about how he, he can't get too close to the players and there's some hesitation there. Were you kind of the same way? Explain some of your, you know, your relationship with the players. What was it like? Yeah, early in my career, I was. Um, I didn't really know how to handle players. And, and, and first of all, I was never in a major league clubhouse. I was never good enough to really understand that. Um, so I respectfully kept my distance. Um, I churned my rosters a lot, so I didn't really want to get that close to players with the understanding that at some point in time, I'm going to put them in a position where they're not going to be really happy with some of the decisions that are going to be made about their future. As I matured in my career, I realized that you can have an authentic relationship with players. All players want is the truth. Um, they may not like it, but they'll really respect you if you authentically keep them in the loop and tell them the truth of what's going on and uh, where they stand within a given certain situation, whether that's a trade uh, or their playing time, uh, they'll respect that. And I think if you can do that consistently over the period of enough years, you'll realize that you create a much healthy culture and environment in our clubhouse. I thought Brian Sabian was wonderful at that for years. I thought he and, and Bruce Bochy and Dick Tidrow, they, they created an organization there that was very authentic in their dealings with players. And I think it manifests itself the way the Giants played on the field year in, year out. It took me a long time to figure that out, probably based on my own insecurities. Um, but once I began to figure that out, I felt like we had better cultures because I was much more transparent uh, with my relationships with players. And this, this might sound like the simplest question, but take us through kind of a regular like free agent signing. Say you're in on a free agent outfielder. From start to finish, from the time you contact, you know, the representative or whoever you're contacting, how does that end up, you know, maybe from the time, from that time to maybe when they finish their physical, what is the process there in between? You have a conversation with an agent. Um, if you're on a fishing expedition or you really realistically have a chance to reel the player in and, um, you know, then I think you got to set parameters of where you're comfortable going to. And if it gets beyond those parameters, you have to have the ability to walk away because anything that I've ever done that got outside those parameters, i.e. Mike Hampton type deal or Denny Nagel type deal for me in my career never turned out to be a good deal. 
Um, so I, I think it's no different than a trade. I think you've got to set parameters on the players you're willing to give up uh, for the value of the player you're getting back. And I feel clubs should, should always win trades. I don't think any club should win a trade. I think both teams should win a trade. I think the free agent process has to be the same way. I think it has to, you have to create a win-win situation. I think over the years you develop relationships with representatives, agents, where you kind of know who you're dealing with. And um, so I think you find out pretty quickly, Stephen, really, whether you're going to get a deal done or not. And then you set parameters and then you let them do what they have to do because they're going to go out and try to get the best deal for their client in the best situation possible. That's their fiduciary responsibility. And so you have to create multiple other options for yourself in addition to the one player that you want to sign. And then you hold your breath all the way through the, because I've had deals where I had something done until the physical and they blew up. You, no one ever knows about those deals because I would never, ever uh, release that information and put the player's career in jeopardy. I think it, it's horrendous by some teams doing that. I, I think it gets really wrong because I think it really puts a stigma on a player that he should not have to wear. Because some teams can look at an MRI totally different than the way we might have looked at an MRI. So I think it's unfair to put a player in a position where anything regarding his MRI should ever be made public. That's interesting. Um, you enjoy doing TV now, huh? I could tell. I do. You know, I, I, I have to tell you the wins and losses of being a GM. Colorado was a really hard place to be a GM. And, you know, it probably got the best of me without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, I'm very fortunate to get to a few playoffs in one World Series, but certainly didn't win anywhere near what I'd hoped when I took that job. Uh, yet I felt like we had really good teams sometimes leaving spring training that just simply could not handle the grind of Colorado. And I can sit here today and say, if I took the job all over again, I'm still not sure what I would do to create a, a, a winning team there. So it goes to show you, you know, how challenging it is. But the wins and losses, you know, I think for me, the harder part was, Stephen, is that I couldn't enjoy the wins as much as the losses hurt. And I think when you get to that point in your career, you know, you're done. Um, because it just, it becomes, the job is so hard. You travel 200 days a year. You have a night game that ends at 11. You back, I used to get up and work out at four or five back in the office by 10 or nine or 10 that day. And then, you know, you're just totally committed. It's not a job where you can turn off and on. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, if you're passionate about it. And I was, but I definitely think there's a shelf life to it. So I love doing what I do now because I love the game of baseball. I love to talk about it, but the wins and losses, don't consume me. I don't care who wins and loses at the end of the night. I'm just going to be objective. And I've tried to be as transparent as I can on air about what I feel is going on, even if it was a friend that I was talking about on the other end of the discussion. Um, because I felt like if I was going to do this job and try to be halfway decent on it, I had to be authentic about what I felt. Doesn't mean I'd be right, um, but at least I'd have an opinion. And people can take that opinion any way they want it because I don't follow social media at all. So I think there's probably people that like what I say and people can't stand what I say, but I don't, I'm not on any social media other than Instagram and my daughter's the one who does all my posts. I've never looked at it one time. So um, I'm not a big social media guy. I love a shout out to your daughter for, for taking care of you there on, on Instagram. Appreciate that. Uh, does it ever, does, does it ever feel similar working in TV to kind of being an executive? Cause they give you packets and packets of information. I'm sure. It does. Uh, yeah. We and, get, yeah. It's team building is what's similar. Uh -huh. So I take each organization, I put myself into the general manager's position mm -hmm. and try to think, okay, what would I do here? What I wouldn't do here? What I do, I agree with them. Do I disagree with them? Uh, so in that way it is, um, I, you know, I miss the camaraderie and the competition and the feeling of doing something bigger than myself. I think you're going to find as you work in TV, though, I love the people I work with at the network. 
I love the people I work for, and I look at them as teammates. I don't feel like I'm doing something that's bigger than myself, if that makes sense to you. I think when I'm when I was part of a GM or director of player development or scouting director, I always felt like I was part of a team, and that team was bigger than me. And when you do something that's totally for yourself, you know, it's hard to replicate that feeling. And I do miss that feeling very much. And you're also doing win reality on the side. Tell us about win reality. I see it all over. So you're doing a good job with advertising because I see it everywhere. And someone that I actually had on the show uh, has been in your ads. I don't know if you probably heard the name Nazir Moulet, who's one of the great young uh, high school players currently in the game. Yep. Um, and he was great. And I wanted to get that interview quickly because I knew that he would turn into some firearm uh, and a, a two-way guy. I don't know how long he's going to be a two-way guy, but we shall see. But tell us what win reality is. Yeah, well, let me just uh, start with start. For, first of all, win stands for what's important now, because that was an acronym that I used in development process. Like if we could get our staff to focus on what's important now, we'd eliminate a lot of the other issues that get in the way of developing players to their fullest potential. So it's kind of a cool name that way. So basically what we do is we take, uh, we're a software or technology company or software based and we're a training company. So we take, we simulate live game action in a, in a uh, immersive environment, in this case, VR, AR, to replicate game speed activities. So Specifically in baseball, softball, we take a pitcher and we recreate that pitcher in a VR world to throw exactly how that pitcher throws within a game based upon all of their data. We replicate movement patterns, velocity. It's the exact same guy um, or girl that you're seeing that, you know, you would face in a given game. And the focus for us is, is though we're a hitting company, we are really more of a pitch recognition company because the biggest hole I felt like in my development process of running the Indians development system in in Cleveland, we had great players come through there and in Colorado was we couldn't replicate the pitcher hitter, hitter, hitter matchup other than the game itself. I couldn't duplicate it no matter how much I tried with um, high speed uh, machine work or, um, hiring ex players to throw batting practice or short work, I couldn't replicate the speed of the game, nor the emotion of the game, nor the inver- immersive environment of the game. When I got to Colorado and we had the, the huge home road differences, it really became paramount for me. But it wasn't until I got out of the game and I did this with my son, Chris, who had gotten released by the White Sox. He played uh, minor league baseball for six years. He's a Dartmouth kid, way smarter than his dad, um, that we really – put our total focus on creating um, this type of business. And uh, it's now, I mean, it's completely taken off. We have pretty much most of the major league teams. Uh, We have over 200 college programs, probably pushing 250, but that's not even the bulk of our user base. Our user base is just the the eight-year-old to the 18-year-old. And we have 50, 60 to 70,000 users now utilizing our product. The beauty of our product is you can utilize it anywhere. You can use it in the bedroom, in the living room, in your garage. Uh, you just need, you know, you just need some space to be able to swing. We have all these challenges within the system that predicated off pitch recognition skills. So we can train the eyes to pick up the ball quicker, which takes high velocity and makes it less velocity. Not rocket science here. If you're getting triple counts, you're going to be a better hitter than you're hitting in minus counts. 
And now we've evolved into where you can hit within the experience now too with ball flight. And we have all the metrics that you can capture and we've made the product affordable. So we're stoked about our future. I mean, we've, we've taken off here over the last 18 months um, and we're continuing to grow at a phenomenal pace. And uh, we started with three people. We have close to 70 now. We're based in Austin, Texas, and we have a ton of ex-players that, that work for us. Uh, not on the development side, um, but on the marketing and and uh, supportive side of the business. So really, really proud of our company, really proud of my son. He's the CEO and he's done a great job with it. And if I were to tell you like 15 years ago that you'd be in the virtual reality business, what would you say? I wouldn't be shocked. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I wouldn't know I'd be in the VR business, but I knew that, that I really had a strong inkling to get into, I always had an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, Honestly, I almost wish I had done this sooner uh, because, you know, instead of working for other people, it's uniquely satisfying to work for yourself and to build something that you, your fingerprints are on it. Though, honestly, my fingerprints are very small on this. Chris's fingerprints are all over it. Mine are just a little point of it. But I, I wouldn't be shocked because, you know, when you work in an industry a long period of time and you have any kind of entrepreneurial spirit, you're going to recognize the holes within that industry. And the biggest hole in the industry from the development of players for me is being able to train players at game speed. That's why it takes so many minor league at bats for a pit, for a hitter to get good because they can't replicate those situations without playing games. And hopefully we're not a substitute for games or normal batting practice. We're just an augmented, no, no pun intended. We're an augmented um, to what you do on a daily basis. We just want to fit in to what you do, not replacing that what you do. Because I think what you do to prepare yourself in the game currently is important too. Yeah, no, I think that this is completely revolutionary and uh, kudos to you and your son for uh, this thing taking off because it's uh, it's really cool. Dan, I really appreciate the time. This was a lot of fun and uh, best of luck to you at the network and uh, win reality. I appreciate you coming on. Hey, Stephen, I do a lot of these because I love talking about the game of baseball. And uh, kudos to you because your questions today, I can tell you prepared, which quite honestly, most people don't. And number two, your questions were fabulous. So you got an unbelievable future in this thing. Just keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And of course, you guys could follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at RizzoCast. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your podcast, Stitcher, YouTube, uh, all that fun stuff. So subscribe follow all that fun stuff and uh, see you next time.